Welcome to News of the Times and our new limited series, Forgotten Fridays, which has been created by our wonderful summer intern, Jason. In this series, we look at a snapshot of times from newspaper articles and publications from long ago. The Time, 1879-1881 The Headlines The Blackpool Illuminations in England are switched on for the first time. The first female students are admitted to study for degrees at the University of Oxford in England. Sunderland Associated Football Club is formed by a group of school teachers in North East England. Using a filament of carbonized thread, Thomas Edison tests his first practical electric light bulb, lasting approximately 13 and a half hours before burning out. Gilbert and Sullivan's comic opera, The Pirates of Penzance, opens at the Fifth Avenue Theatre in New York City. Wabash, Indiana, becomes the first electrically lit city in the world. Alexander II of Russia is killed near his palace when a bomb is thrown at him. He is succeeded by his son, Alexander III. Billy the Kid is shot and killed by Pat Garrett outside Fort Sumner, New Mexico. The gunfight at the O.K. Corral occurs in Tombstone, Cochise County, Arizona. Brahms Piano Concerto No. 2 premieres in Budapest. The Convent of the Sacred Heart, New York City's oldest independent school for girls, is founded. An excerpt from the Cambrian News, February 1879, the execution of Charles Peace, leads. In the quietude of the prison yard, just within Armley Jail, Charles Peace was executed at eight o'clock on Tuesday morning. February the 25th. At a quarter to eight o'clock, large numbers of people had assembled. At eight o'clock, a warder mounted the tower near the jail entrance and five minutes afterwards ran up the black flag amid the shouting of the crowd. Precisely at eight o'clock, peace pinioned and supported by two warders emerged from the western portion of the prison yard, arriving at the steps leading to the scaffold. Peace did not hesitate in the least, but walked firmly to the trap. Just as Marwood was about to put on the cap, Peace, with a wave of his hand, dissented. God have mercy upon me! God have mercy upon me! God have mercy upon me! he said. Then addressing the reporters, he said, gentlemen, but the executioner did not hear him, and he said to Marwood, Do stop a bit, if you please. Marwood immediately desisted, and Peace, turning to the reporters, said, Gentlemen, I wish you to notice a few words I am going to say. 
You know that my life has been base and bad, but I desire to show you, the reporters, how a man can die, a man who dies in the fear of the Lord. I feel sure my sins are forgiven and that I am going to the kingdom of heaven or else to the place prepared for those who rest until the judgment day. I hope I have no enemies, but if I have, I freely forgive them all. I wish them well and hope to see them all in the kingdom of heaven. Turning to the governor, he said, Goodbye, goodbye, and may heaven's blessing rest upon you, and may you come to the kingdom of heaven. My last wishes are that you send my lasting respects to my dear children and their mother, and I hope no one will be disgracing them or taunting or jeering them about my life that I have led and the end to which I have come. May God's blessing rest upon my dear children. Goodbye, goodbye. May God in heaven bless you himself. The chaplain continued to read the service, but peace interrupted him again, saying, I should like to have a drink. Can any of you get me a drink? His interruption was not noticed by the chaplain who went on reading, but Peace insisted in his attempts to obtain a drink. His efforts were fruitless, however, for just as the chaplain read the words, Into thy hands I commend my spirit, Marwood, who had adjusted the cap and rope, moved the lever. The door fell, and Peace dropped instantly. He entirely disappeared from view, with a drop of eight feet, and death was immediate. In fact, he never moved after he fell. As soon as the black flag was hoisted, the crowd outside the jail quickly dispersed. After the execution, the body remained suspended until nine o'clock, when it was cut down and conveyed to the dead house. The bloodless face appeared very little altered. At eleven o'clock, the usual inquest was held upon the body. The culprit's age was stated in the coroner's inquisition to be forty-seven, but he appeared older. The crowd around the jail numbered about four hundred. Advertisement from the London Daily News, May 1880 A wholesome summer beverage, Rose's Lime Juice Cordial, supplies a delicious cooling drink in water, effervescing in all mineral waters and an excellent stimulant blended with spirits. It is highly medicinal, cooling and purifying the blood, assisting digestion. Recommended by The Lancet, sold everywhere. Purchasers should be careful to order only roses cordial, all others being imitations. From the Wiltshire Times and Trowbridge Advertiser, April 1879, Dilton Marsh, Timely Charity. What is known in Dilton as the annual bread fair was held on Tuesday last, when the usual distribution of bread took place. Miss Hyde zealously braved the cold rain and the wind and delivered the tickets to those deserving of them, while Mr. Carpenter presided at the wagons and handed the huge loaves to the grateful recipients. The shortness of work made the charity acceptable, and judging from appearances, it was much appreciated. 
Advertisement from the London Daily News, June 1880. Italy. Required a young person, 20 to 25, accustomed to children and wishing to travel, also able to pack boxes. Will spend the winter in Egypt, £39 and all found. Apply, second floor, 23 Burner Street. An excerpt from the Wiltshire Times and Trowbridge Advertiser, September 1880. Correspondence, Opinion from a Practical Student, Lessons on Cooking for the Poor. To the Editor. Sir, I have read your account of Mr. J. C. Buckmaster's recent lecture on cooking published in the Advertiser, and beg to offer a few remarks upon any improvement in preparing food, especially as regards the labouring classes. Mr. Buckmaster has now lectured on this subject for years, and school cookery have been started in various towns, yet those by whom this instruction is most needed, the day labouring class, still continue to cook their meat in the worst possible fashion, as far as digestion and economy are concerned, and to waste one-sixth of their potatoes they still retain their disdain for rabbit victuals, garden stuff, and eat as much meat and drink as much beer as they can get, or perhaps their fancies lean in the direction of white bread and tea. In any case, they disregard a most welcome, tasty, and satisfying class of foods amongst which may be enumerated beans, peas, oatmeal, rice, barley and many others. My present object is to point out a few of the reasons for this disregard and I would recommend them to the consideration of those who are anxious to render their poor neighbours happier by showing them how to get better, nicer and more satisfying things to eat for no more even at less cost than their present diet. The question of time and trouble does not receive sufficient consideration from Mr. Buckmaster and his colleagues. Where a woman goes to a factory for twelve hours a day, only coming home for an hour at mealtimes, it is simply impossible for her to prepare decently cooked meals. Perhaps she might get up little relish for supper, but unless she possesses extraordinary vigour, and constitution, she is far too fagged out with the monotony, with the whir of machinery, and perhaps the impure atmosphere of the workshop or factory, or she has too many other matters to see to, to be capable of doing much in this respect. And it is unfortunate that the women with large families and therefore most required at home are those who most frequently find it requisite to eke out their husband's earnings by going to work themselves. Apart from this, suppose the mother does not go out to work. The household cares and worries of a young family do not leave her much opportunity or time to exercise the care and accuracy that are the principal requirements for good cooking. It is very easy for Mr. Buckmaster, with the aid of his gas stove and two female domestics, to turn out credible specimens of the culinary art. But how would he get on with a plain fireplace 
and only large enough to take one decent-sized saucepan. A well-known fancy hygienist has remarked that we build our houses as if there was no such thing as disease. We provide nothing for the comfort of the sick. In the case of many cottages for the labouring class, where nothing beyond a plain fireplace is provided, no oven, no boiler, we may say that the landlords build houses as if there was no such thing as cooking. Let us imagine women in such houses with one or two young children about, her only utensils being a saucepan and a baking dish. Many of the labouring classes boast little more. How many of Mr Buckmaster's recipes would be possible for her to carry out? It really is almost a cruel joke for Mr Buckmaster to say that the working woman should know how to make three or four sauces. I have known a great many poor folk, sick and healthy, and I have conversed with them on their mode of living, but I have never heard of one of them expressing the slightest desire for sauces. What the poor want is more convenience for preparing good, cheap food. Set a well-cooked plain dish before a working man, and he will get on very well without sauces. Any endeavour to infuse anything in the way of variety into the hard, dull, monotonous, unelevating and fossilising lives of the poor have my best sympathies and prayers for their success. But in undertaking any work, it is best to face boldly any difficulties that beset our way, not to be downhearted or intimidated by them, not to be frightened by them, but to rouse up our energies to overcome them. When the more educated classes try to help the poor, they must avoid all pride, patronism, and pedantry, and if it to be to teach them better cooking or anything else, a very good dish to commence with is the milk of human kindness. Advertisement from the London Daily News, June 1880. Parents wishing to find desirable openings for their sons can have them placed with responsible American farmers in good homes and healthy climate. They will be practically taught farming and can be entirely independent of any aid from home from the time they leave England. Premiums, 50 to 75 guineas. Address in the first instance, NP 61 Cheapside. From the Wiltshire Times and Trowbridge Advertiser, September 1880, Dilton Marsh. Mary Ann Loxley, wife of Joseph Loxley, labourer, was summoned for using threatening language towards Anne Webb at Dilton Marsh on the 9th of August, and the latter asked that the defendant should be bound over to keep the peace toward her. The parties are neighbours, and as it appeared from the evidence, are often in the habit of quarrelling. On the 9th of August, complainant met defendant in the street when the latter remarked, I would, if I had my will, murder thee, and at the same time, using foul language, she also spat in complainant's face. Defendant, on being asked by the bench whether she had any questions to ask the complainant, 
made a long harangue in respecting the late election of Westbury and caused much confusion in court. The chairman remarked that if she didn't keep quiet, it would be the worse for her. She, however, refused, and the bench would not allow her to ask the complainant any questions. Martha Lampier, another neighbour, bore out complainant statement and stated that she, witness, dared not go outside of her house unless she was called all manner of bad names by the defendant, who also had threatened her life. Defendant called Charles Bailey, labourer of Dilton Marsh, who stated that he lived near the complainant and defendant, and he had heard complainant repeatedly call defendant bad names, but he did not see the row on the 9th of August. Defendant said complainant accused her of getting her out of employ and admitted that she had used bad language towards her. P.C. Brewer said that for the last three years he had received complaints as to defendant's conduct. She was always annoying her neighbours and bore a bad character. The bench bound defendant over to keep the peace for six months, fined her ten pounds and one surety in similar amount. The surety was found and the defendant was released on her husband paying nine shillings, the expenses incurred. Advertisement from the Shields Daily Gazette, April 1879. For six nights only, commencing Thursday, April the 24th, every evening at 8, and Saturdays at 3 and 8. Admission, two shillings, one shilling and sixpence. Boz, the greatest wizard of the age, will exhibit the gems of necromancy contained in his palace of enchantment consisting as it does of things magical, musical, mystical, cabalistical, and supernatural. At the close of each public entertainment, he will give his celebrated dark seance. From the Huddersfield Chronicle, February 1881, Women's Rights. An important statement was made at a meeting in support to women's rights held at Birmingham a day or two ago. One of the speakers, Mrs. Craigian, after pointing out her objections to women being classified as they were in Acts of Parliament amongst criminals, lunatics and idiots, attributed their unenfranchised condition mainly to the prejudice of man. She had heard men say that they would not like to marry a woman who exercised a vote. Well, they did not want men to marry them unless they were liked. It was not to be married that they were claiming, but that they should not be starved and oppressed whilst they were single. Utmost publicity remarks a contemporary should be given to this gratifying announcement. There will be joy in many places when man clearly understands that he incurs no risk of being carried up to the altar by a strong-minded woman armed with statutory powers invoked by herself. On the other hand, man, after this assurance, can hardly do less than promise that he will no longer countenance the detestable practices complained of, namely the systematic starvation and oppression of spinsters. Nor should he continue as a rule to classify women amongst criminals, lunatics and idiots. 
By these graceful concessions, he will perhaps pacify women and regain, if not her affection, at least her esteem. There is really no reason for the antagonism that has unfortunately arisen between the two sexes, and, if it is not too late, the sooner a compromise is effected, the better. From the Alcaster Chronicle, November 1881, Women's Rights in the City The city has long recognised women's rights in a practical way, but I fancy it is not generally known, therefore Mr. G. R. Dodd, a London solicitor, is entitled to the thanks of ladies of a business tone of mind by calling attention to the fact that in the city the wife has for centuries possessed the right to trade as femme sole. The privilege existed when Sir Richard Whittington was Lord Mayor and Henry V was King, for it is mentioned in the Liber Albus, written during their reign. It would be interesting to know how many married ladies there are in the city exercising this prerogative of being spinsters as far as concerns their commercial life. You have been listening to the News of the Times, 1879 through 1881. Thank you for listening and watching this episode of Forgotten Fridays. You have been listening to News of the Times. We would like to thank our tremendous supportive subscribers. Thank you. Your comments, suggestions and interaction is greatly appreciated. Thank you again. If you haven't subscribed, we would be very grateful if you did. We need a minimum of 1,000 subscribers to keep this channel alive. Please subscribe, tell your friends and share on social media. We would greatly appreciate it. We upload six days a week. Fridays are a new limited series called Forgotten Fridays, where we explore a snapshot from newspaper articles, advertisements and publications of a time from long ago. Saturdays are Serial Killer Saturdays, where we do an in-depth look at a serial killer from our extensive database. The time span of these ranges from as early as the mid-16th century to the 21st century and encompasses men, women, children and couples who kill. Sundays are eccentrics as we do an in-depth look at some of the quirky, unusual, notable and bizarre characters from Great Britain, which offers up a rich supply to choose from. Mondays are murderous, where we investigate in-depth a historical murder. Tuesdays are twisted and usually involve a collection of stories based around a theme, such as stories of matricide or when employers go bad. Wednesdays are wicked in this new series that will explore outrageous organisations, bloody locations and shocking events with a bit of murder and mayhem sprinkled in. From all of us at News of the Times, thank you again for watching or listening. This has been News at the Times, and I am Robin Coles.